Hi everyone, you're listening to AWA and I have Ninama Limbu with me today. Hi Ninama and thanks for joining me today. Hi Richard, thanks for having me. It's so nice to actually have you on here because I'm really interested to know more about what you do. But first I want to actually tell the listeners that Ninama is a co-founder of HI, which stands for Hamro Insight. Uh, it's tap, a platform tap. inclusive of all dialogues, topics and issues in the perspective of the UK Nepali community. Even if you're not Nepali, you will probably find the content very insightful and take a lot away from the wide range of conversations they have surrounding the topics around Nepal and Nepali culture, traditions, plus more. Um, Ninama is currently working as children's social worker, which I want to hear about. But first, Ninama, I want to just say um, that, you know, Hamra Insight has played a very crucial role in giving me the boost to start my own podcast. So thank you. No, thank you. That's such a big compliment. I love how vocal you and Ramona, who's the other half of Hamra Insight, um, you know, you. I love how vocal you are about, you know, raising current topics surrounding gender issues um, in Nepal to beauty standards. I mean, where did you get the idea from for Hamra Insight and what made you start the podcast? Okay, so just for the listeners listening, it's, it's more of a, like a video podcast. Um, yeah. Uh, where did we get started? So I think it's always been between me and Ramona, like we've grown up together since we were really young. Mm. I mean, we our conversations were always, you know, very lighthearted, but sometimes it would get really deep mm-hmm. and we would really like question each other. And me and Ramona, even though we are very similar, our thought processes and our mindset about this our Nepali side is very different because her being the oldest in her family and me being the youngest in my family however we're the both we're the same age we're only like a month apart right. and it's very similar experiences it, it always used to kind of like shock me and Ramona like why do we think so differently mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. a bit more um traditional let's say being the oldest having all those responsibilities and me being the youngest I would be a bit more like no no yeah Conditional, you're conditioned and uh, we always had this conversations with us with our friends and we thought surely it's not just us you know it's not just us who who talks like this who talks about these issues so we thought why don't we put it out there and see what the other people think because the the conversation we have are important conversations they're not mm-hmm. just like oh you know like airy fairy it was more like kind of significant something we thought maybe a lot of other international Nepali from America or from the UK will probably have a significant impact or input mm-hmm. on those topics so we thought let's try it yeah but of course you know there was a lot of struggles in that but we got there in the end yeah yeah and I love it and um for me as well, it was so interesting to hear the different perspectives uh, from a guy and a girl, you know, like who was born in Nepal, who was raised here um, and all the differences in how they kind of thought about things. So, yeah, it's definitely such a good um, conversation that you guys have. Um, so since 2019, which is when you started to now, what has been the best thing about doing the podcast for you personally? I think the best thing has been... Um... It's opened up a dialogue within the youth, so all us first generation. Um, it's nice to see that some people think like me mm-hmm. and how some people do not think like me, even though we've had, I wouldn't say identical, but very similar backgrounds. And it, it's just kind of made me feel like, wow, I 
I like I need to kind of check myself as well because mm. as as we can tell in some of the episodes, I have quite strong opinions and mm-hmm. quite loud about it. But some of the guys or even Ramona in the um, in the discussions, they have very different, and it's made me feel like, oh wait, oh, actually, yeah, a lot of people do think differently, and I think it's just kind of opened up my own perspective mm-hmm. with a lot of topics as well, and made me more resilient is the word yeah Mm, I love that I love how you accept that there are opinions you know other people's opinions that you should consider and the fact that we well you are being open-minded to it more since you've done the podcast and I completely kind of agree with me as well like when I've heard you guys speak I've taken on so many comments from like the guests that you have and I've kind of reevaluated how I think and why I think that way and yeah that's you know that's such a great way to learn I think for sure yeah and I think it's um, just saying that out loud, it's okay, you know, it's okay to change your mindset. I feel like sometimes people get really defensive, like, oh, when it's supposed to, like, I used to think like this, and now I think like this, and people will like, call you out. And I'm mm. like, well, we're humans. We change, we evolve with the experiences we have. So I think that's just something I have learned through humor insight and just through life experiences as well Mm, I love that I love how you said like we change as we kind of you know grow and that's just part of life I mean I could speak about high forever but let's move on to your role as a social worker in children's service now I mean I want to know everything that you do and I'm sure some of the listeners as are very keen to understand you know what it is that you do because I personally don't know anyone else apart from you who works in this role and in this sector so can you share a little insight into what you do? Okay. So, yeah, no, I agree. It's very, I don't see a lot of Nepali or even Asian faces who work in the social sector. So I am a social worker who work in children's services. So if you go broadly, uh, we are the welfare state. Um, and then there's an adult services and children's services. Children's services go from unborn babies mm-hmm. until the age of 18. And children's services is there to protect vulnerable children right that's the overarching thing about social workers Mm -hmm. so we work on the basis of the children act um the children act 1989 and it got reformed in 2004 or three and the number one um point in article one of uh children Act literally says all children are their well-being is paramount so they they are entitled to being safe Mm -hmm. and of course we would think it's the parents' responsibility. But sometimes we have to understand not everybody or every parent or every person that becomes a parent is as privileged to have a good upbringing Mm. or knows parent correctly. Mm. There are some children who are very vulnerable and they are, the state is um, responsible for their safeguarding. Right. um, But then of course there's a certain threshold that has to be met for when we get involved. So yeah. we're kind of advocate for the vulnerable children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, it's so interesting that you, you know, you talk about how, um, unfortunately not all parents are responsible. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, like, obviously it seems like a, a role where you have to be very objective even if that is difficult, because um, I, I can't imagine, I can imagine it being very personal in the sense that you kind of want to do it your way and, but you have to stick by the rule book, right? Like, I'm sure you guys have guidelines. 
So is yeah. there any like particular stories or anything that you can share? I understand that obviously confidentiality is very important, but any like general stories that you can share that you've experienced that was difficult for you personally, maybe. Um, and, you know, like just an example of what sort of, sort of stuff you deal with. Okay, yeah. Um, so I've, I think two examples literally pop into my head when you ask that question. So one of them is, I think it it's when we so we work with a lot of cases which has domestic abuse or domestic violence involved mm-hmm. in the family. Um, yes, the domestic abuse and the violence is between the parents, but we get involved as a children's a social worker because we're children and family. As much as we say the abuse is happening to a victim and it's the abuser, if there's a child involved, the child is being um, impacted indirectly mm. because of what he, uh, he or she is witnessing because because of the atmosphere in the house you know it does have an impact um a lot of us adults we say oh they're not witnessing it but you know it's not just direct there's a lot mm. of indirect impact so i remember i think this was very early on in my career like my first year of pra- in practice um it was very clear the abuser was you know guilty he yeah. said he was guilty um and in this case, as a role of a social worker, what we do is we go into the house, we assess the risks of to the child, you know, from what is happening around the house. Majority of the time, the families will engage with us. Mm-hmm. Like, not majority of the time. Not majority of the right, time. Right, right. And when they do engage with us, that's when we try to kind of come up with a, we call it a child in need plan. Mm-hmm. It's um, very interchangeable with the term like care plan. Uh, where we try to input um, input like support services for the family. So if there is a uh, the perpetrator, we would probably get him to get some counselling. Um, the victim will also get some counselling as well, and then maybe they have like marriage counselling. And at okay. the same time, we as the child, child social worker, we engage with the child with like, a lot of direct work just to understand how their well being is. Mm-hmm. That's I mean the care plan I'm saying is it's very low risk. If mm-hmm. it does get, if the risk is very high, then we go to court, you know, oh, wow. deem, um, if the parents are deemed not to have the capacity to parent the, the child and not and does not have the capacity to safeguard the child, mm. um, then we do go to court proceedings, try to get a care order where the child can be re, can have another placement. I don't like to use the term, like, taken away, mm, you know, mm. Parents' care because we're not doing that because the parents like it. I think its language is very important, so it's not like yeah. taking the child away from the parent, it's more like we are replacing or giving the child another placement. Um, mm. a foster home sometimes it's adoption, sometimes it's fostering, sometimes it's um, if they're old enough, they yeah. might have a hostel kind of environment, right? right. So, so, I think in that, the, the moral is, um, I had to work with the, the perpetrator. And of course, me as a person, like me as me as me, I'm a limbo, not the social worker. Mm. I have my, you know, my life morals where mm-hmm. cheated, abusers, once a cheater, once an abuser, always a cheater or abuser. And those are your personal, like, yeah, thoughts. that's my yeah. personal yeah. mindset, let's say. Mm. And then in this work field, I have to work with this perpetrator and try to be cordial and, you know, mm. not let my personal morals kind of inflict with my professional um, values and that was something very hard for me yeah. I, I had to be like okay you know just take my personal 
my like you know voices out and just work professionally and I had to support this perpetrator to kind of you know re-engage with his family um do right be a good father try to put the child first um he had a lot of like um what is it um anger therapy all of those things and I had to meet him like we have to meet the family like once every three to four weeks right protocol and have those really difficult conversation um and as like a what was I like 22 23 coming into it and talking to a, a man who yeah. was 50 plus was very difficult because you know the Nepalese culture yeah older than us is always wise always right we should mm. always so there's a lot of like cultural boundaries in that aspect um I can imagine it being super overwhelming, especially when you mentioned the age you were and who you were dealing with. So how how did you deal with that? I mean, how do you overcome these like, you know, mental, like um, almost barriers to what you're doing? I think, I mean, in the beginning, um, it wasn't that bad. I think maybe it's just the way my managers held held my cases. Mm. I had a bit of like low risk cases. Yeah. But the hardest case, if I give an example, was when I had to re- like re- replace the children in another place. So in right. a sense, um, we deemed that it wasn't safe for the children to be at the house for the given reason, and we got right, uh, we got the court's approval and everything, and we had to tell the children who were different ages. From the youngest was three, the oldest was probably fifteen or sixteen. So like you know, a varied of ages. And we had to take them and tell them that, you know, you're, you're leaving the house. You're oh, not leaving your parents anymore. And that was my first time. I had support that time because it was my first time to do that. Mm. Uh, at the moment, I, when, I, when I was going to that house to do that task, I was like, no, it's the right thing for the children. You know, it's the right mm-hmm. thing for the children. I'm reading my paperwork. I'm reading the statements from court. And I'm like, it's all good. Yeah, I'm doing the right thing. I get there mm-hmm. and look at the children's faces and I'm like, oh gosh, like it just broke me. Yeah. But I had to keep telling myself, you know, this is right by then because the things that would have happened would not have been in their best interest. So yeah. we, we took them, uh, placed them in their new foster placements and everything. And on the way back, um, it was really hard. And that was the first time I just had it. I didn't sleep well. A lot of, you know, emotional conflicts and everything mm. what really helps is um i i work at least an hour away from uh, my office right so it gives me that good hour break to kind of just let work go like mm. leave it at the town i work and then come to my hometown mm. so i try my best but other than that i just yeah, I just try not to take it to heart. Like, yeah. Gosh, that, yeah, I mean, just listening to that, my heart was breaking because I don't think I would be able to do it. And, you know, someone has to be able to take that action and do it. So, yeah, like, you know, I think what you're doing is um, good in a sense that you're doing what's best for the children. So, you know, that's what's important and that's your role. And, I also want to ask you, obviously, this is such a difficult role emotionally. So what made you kind of want to do it? Why did you choose to do it? And did you always want to do something in this field? No. So, of course, being brought up in a typical Nepalese or Asian family, I think my parents had always told me to do a STEM project, you know, like mm. science, maths, all mm. of that. 
And um, surprisingly enough, I was. I was studying science um, my first year um, in uni. Came out, I didn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. I wasn't doing particularly well in that field as well. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing a science background um, topic to the killer, because I played basketball for mm-hmm. the university, and I met a friend and she was in social work actually right um and she would volunteer at this one youth club every Tuesday um because growing up I didn't know what social services was I think if you're not involved in it you don't know what social services is you don't understand the children's services anything you're right she would tell me like oh this is what happens in the UK you you know people help you some children even get killed they get murdered Mm. die because of the parents being not having the capacity to parent properly let's just say yeah. yeah um and that's when I learned about it and then if you go like a few years back to when I was in college um I've always been volunteering um doing side projects charity projects and everything and growing up I think I always visioned myself maybe in my retirement age like at the age of 40 or like 50 60 mm-hmm. I would want to you know work for an NGO or you know yeah kind of just do something along those lines but it was like it was never in my head like oh that's a job Mm, mm. that's something that you do as a hobby it's never a job you've got to do like an office job which is in science or business um but as I was in the uni I met a friend Joy and she told me all about it and I was like "Mm, maybe maybe I should change right and um yeah I the the topic I was in the science uh, field I was in I just didn't enjoy it um Mm-hmm. So I took that leap of faith, which was the most scariest thing, <laughs> and um, yeah, I right. changed. You're so right in the sense that we're so, um, we've as Asian kids, as Nepali kids, we're always kind of, STEM is a great subject, don't get me wrong, but it's there are other, you know, careers beyond STEM as well. Mm-hmm. And like you said, um, I, I don't think I was fully aware of social services when I was a kid. I mean, I, I knew of it, but I didn't exactly know that, you know, what, what was the ins and outs of that. Um, so I love the fact that you talk about changing um subject because i think a lot of the people i've spoken to have done the same um but you're brave in the sense that you recognize that early and took that plunge into something that you want to go into um so what was it like studying in university so what degree is it is it called social working <laughs> yeah so um the degree you have to do to become a social worker is called a social work degree all right okay i got that right then <laughs> okay uh, so I went to Bath University and I did the social work and social sciences, so just a little bit on the side, uh, 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 BSc. Mm. Um, so what the degree involves is the first year you are with all the humanities students, you just learn about the history of the welfare state, the benefit system, the poor law, or how the welfare, the workhouses, all that got started, and that's like years back, I don't mm. even remember what the year was. Um, and then... In second and third year, you have to do, like, a placement. So it's kind of very similar to the nursing uh, degree. Um, of course, I think right. in nursing, you have to do all three years. For for social work, you have to do a second-year placement and a third-year placement. And they're, like, 80 days and 100 days. Mm-hmm. And then so it's kind of like uni. You, you do your first year in uni, uh, university. Second year, the first, I think mine was the first part, 
okay, in the second part, you have to go to uni and do your modules and your, you know, your right. exams and everything. And in third year, it was the other way around. It was the first semester we were in university, we were doing all the modules, exams, and then the second semester, we were in universe, um, in placement, mm-hmm. and that was given by the university, and we had to do, alongside placement, we had to do our dissertation. Oh, wow. That was hell. Mm, I can imagine. Yeah, and you had to do your placement portfolio at the same time. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I think the first year is like kind of a breeze because you're, all you're doing is you're doing student jobs. Yeah. But the second and the third year, when you're in your placement, the placements are very hard because um, some of them are statutory placement, which right. means it's in the local authority. So it's like, um, you know, you do proper social work jobs. Um, mm. Or sometimes it could be in a support service, um, support services or like in charities. Um, so in the first, in my second year, but my first placement, I did my placement in a young adult housing okay. program, I think you would call it, yeah, um, where there was adults, uh, young adults, so age 18 to around 25, they were diagnosed with um, AD, uh, ADSD, ASD, sorry, ASD. Okay, what, sorry, what is that? It's the autistic spectrum. Right, okay. Um, but then there's like certain thresholds for that um, housing estate. So in a state, they had to be quite independent. So they had their own room. Mm. It's, um, like, how do I explain it? It's in a state that these, those group of young adults mm-hmm. had had social work kind of involved in their family or with them right. because of their condition, yep. condition or let's say their diagnosis. Mm-hmm with uh, autism so autism is a spectrum where mm-hmm. you can be autistic or you can also have asperger's mm-hmm. researchers say that you know all of us are in the spectrum it's mm-hmm. just how far along the spectrum you are you're going to actually get diagnosed um right yeah so it was working with those young adults i kind of got a glimpse of how the social um welfare state kind of or the children's services kind of work and mm-hmm. i was like oh okay so this is my first hand mm. so you got and a good insight into like the practical the real side to it when you were studying yeah 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 and then i think in third year when i did my third second year placement my final year placement i worked in a children's services um for a local authority in let's say uh, southwest of the country and that really opened up my eyes of the procedures you know the legislations um the processes you have to go through how it like how people how families even get involved so like mm-hmm. who's barrels kind of like the flow chart of it all right um, yeah and there's different teams within the within the whole the whole picture let's say mm-hmm. so, yeah so yeah great wow I mean I love how your course itself kind of exposed you to that so early on so obviously when you are at work now how much of it is based in the office and how much is it like going out and about and doing stuff so I mean, prior to a pandemic, if it was a normal, you know, without the whole COVID going on, mm. I would say it would be like 70, 30. So 70% out on the field, right. in the field and 30% in the office. Um, but then that could defer. So that, that would probably be three three weeks out of the four weeks in a month. Right. And then the, and the one month you would probably be indoors doing all your paperwork. Because mm-hmm. with us, when we're meeting families we call them service users we don't tend to call them patients or right, clients right and um, the term we use is service users because they're using our service mm-hmm. supporting them um so yeah when we 
Um, so to explain to you clearly, we're out in the field the majority of the time is mm-hmm. because a family is known to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, by guidance, we have to have a meeting every six weeks. Right. So that's if it's child in need. So that's section 17. We have to meet with all the professionals involved, uh, review the care plan and how that's going. So that's with all the professional every six weeks. That's with school, any other support services, if they have like doctors, pediatrics, uh, counsellors, anything involved. So they would all come. Sometimes police gets involved. Sometimes we have health, um, uh, what is it called? Health health visitors, midwives mm-hmm. if they're pregnant, so many things. Sometimes we have army families where army welfare officers get involved. So right. in a way, there's a lot of professionals we work with that come every six weeks. But on top of that, we have to see the child every two weeks. Okay. Child, If that's child protection, that's section 47. We have to meet them every two weeks. Or if it's section 17, which is not so high risk, um, it's every four weeks. So there's a lot of running around, and mm. plus our cases are a certain locality. Um, there's a certain um, postcode that we have to cover. Right. So sometimes I'm traveling like half an hour to meet one family. Sometimes I'm traveling an hour. Mm. But you have to understand the families we work with, or just you know, when someone's coming into your house and saying you're not doing right by your child and you're a mother or a father, you're not really going to want to see us. Mm. So a lot of times, a lot of cancellations in our meetings. Right. So schedule. Um, um, yeah, and sometimes we, when we do our um, uh, interaction with the child, so when mm. I'm meeting up with children, um, that, can co- that can last up to like an hour or even sometimes two hours. You don't know how it's going to go because yeah. it depends on the age of the child, how their mood is. Um, yeah, gosh. So I guess you have to be pretty flexible in this role, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very flexible. I mean, what would you say, like, is say for someone listening to this and are thinking about, you know, taking on a similar path, what would you say is important in terms of what qualities they should have, um, what skills they should have in order to be successful in this role? Um, I I think you just have to be thick skinned. Mm. Um, That's something very important because the reason why I say this is my university degree, we started off with 44 students and only 18 of us graduated. Um, They just started like slowly, people just started quitting. Mm. Um, Some people I think did um, stay back a year because maybe of some family situation. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people dropped out in second year, you know, when they couldn't have the placement. Right, right. Um, I think a lot of people come with the mindset that, you know, we get a, social workers get a lot of bad, bad media Mm -hmm. in in, the newspaper saying, Mm. oh, they're like, you know, um, we do we take children away from families, but then sometimes when children end up dying, mm. we're like, oh, we didn't, we didn't do good enough. So yeah. it's a you know, if we do, I mean, damn if we don't, damn if we yeah. do. So yeah. I think to success, you just have to be, you've got to be a people's person. I think mm. you've got to want to be a, pe- you have to be a people's person where you enjoy meeting people, you you can talk to people, you can talk to random people, and also you have to be very resilient. I mm. think. Uh, in a way, you've got to understand. I think for me, when I'm working with all these uh, vulnerable families, the first thing I had to recognise was my privilege as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, how I hadn't had social services in my family. How, like you know, every day I can wake up 
with both of my both of my hands working, both of my mm. legs working, and having my mental health okay to be able to get up and go to work. Yeah. Because a lot of these families can't, you know, they don't know what normal is. My normal and their normal is completely different. Yeah. And if I never, if I don't even have the mindset to understand what their normal is, I'm never going to make it because mm. I'm just going to be judgmental. I would mm. just be judging their life with really. like, oh, why couldn't you just be a mother? It's not that hard, you know. Mm. If I go in with mentality, being resilient to their life, um, it will be very difficult. Yeah, and I can. You would put a lot on. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that, and I think it's a role where you definitely need to know how to empathize and, um, yeah, like you said, be able to show compassion because uh, we don't all have the privilege. Um, the same privileges and understanding where they come from is I'm sure a very important aspect to have in this job and and it's funny because the way you describe what's important is exactly what you are you are very much like you talk to other people you're very resilient and you also um are very open to um understanding uh other people's experiences so yeah I mean that's why I think you're so good for this role definitely and I do get angry sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. We're, yeah, we're, we're all humans. And, and like, how has the pandemic kind of affected your role? Um, has it been busier? Yeah. So during the pandemic, I think um, I've kind of had to take on a new role just because of some, of, uh, some vulnerability in my family. So, you know, I've been right. working from home. As I've described my role, we can't really work from home because these children have to be seen even now that they are homebound you know mm. for some of these families for some of the victims or some of the children the, the family home is the most dangerous place for them you know mm-hmm. school is their safety zone and our schools have been shut um they have to be homebound not and maybe even the perpetrators if they're trying to make change they are so inbound that they don't even have that time alone Mm. um just think to like kind of de-stress or if things are just boiling up so they are kind of bound within this prison inside their own house Mm. um so my role has changed i've been on duty which is kind of like being on call like similar to a work but but via phone and via like emails Mm -hmm. we always have um one social worker always does this like twice a month so we have to just block out our calendar but what i've done is i'm literally on this role full-time so I can work from home and it's been very busy so we're getting constant police referrals saying there's been a right you know domestic abuse domestic violence within a family Mm -hmm. Uh, there's been an increase in that um there's definitely been an increase in you know those cases that we do close so sometimes Mm -hmm. when the kids do when we feel like oh the risk is so low that we don't there's no need for a social worker to be there mom and dad have made change and we see like they're going well mm-hmm. um, in that snapshot so of course we have to close those cases because it doesn't meet meet threshold but in this pandemic we've seen some of those cases come back wow right of and that's not um i think that's something that was really hard for me to uh kind of digest because some of my cases came back all right um, what did i do something wrong but it isn't it's just the way how the world goes mm, and i guess the situation itself doesn't help because everyone is bound to their homes like you said and that just kind of mm. exaggerates the whole problem right mm. so it's actually not to do with you but i can imagine why you feel why you yeah. would feel like that yeah 
definitely. I know there's definitely. I think there's been a lot of social anxiety. Uh, so no, not social. A lot of professional anxiety mm. Um, mm. that comes well when this pandemic happens. Um, of course, our guidance has changed throughout the year. So in 2020, when the pandemic hit, we didn't know what to do. We were mm. asking us um, service managers, uh, senior managers, like. So do, do we go? Are we supposed to stay at home? You know, mm. so a lot of professional anxiety was coming in and something that was kind of like thrown at our social workers was um, like the education side. Teachers have done amazing. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to say that, but they were getting really anxious with, you know, the vulnerable children who are open to us. They didn't know how they were to support them. Right. Um, so they would ask us what's happening and we would be like, we don't know because the government hasn't told us what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um but we can't just wait because some of these families are so vulnerable that anything can happen overnight. Um, some of these families have such tight-knit plans that those plans have to be altered. Mm. But we didn't know how to alter them because we didn't know the guidelines. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, mm, it's, it's very, very crazy. Yeah. So. It's definitely been a very confusing time throughout the months since, like, obviously COVID started. So then... For you personally, how have you been kind of uh, managing um, the current conditions? Like how, what else have you been doing besides work to help you keep sane? Um, you know, what else have you been up to? Just like outside of work? Yeah, outside of work. Yeah. I think outside of work I've been getting, keeping very busy. Of course, we have our book club. <laughs> read a lot of books, which has been amazing. Yeah. I don't used to read that much. Um I've been doing that and I think I've just been kind of focusing more on my fitness, going for walks, um, trying to get a bit more healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's been like a physical kind of support and also like a mental, it's like very therapeutic as well. Mm-hmm. So when it happened, I was sat at my desk, you know, sometimes working till 8pm because some cases go crazy mm-hmm. and then afterwards I would just have to go to sleep and just yeah. being indoors just did not help with my sleeping patterns and just my um, productivity so I've been increasing walking, nice. reading a lot, yeah. a lot of time with friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was gonna say actually you know the good side to the lockdown has been me actually getting to know you better in the sense that we share so many clubs together now even if it's online like be it book club activities night and I think I've really personally got to know you a lot more and I can tell the listeners like you know you are super like inquisitive and your energy is so contagious and it's brilliant like I love like what all the debates that you come out with all the conversations we have so I'm very thankful for the kind of positive side to I suppose um the current situation um for sure I mean I really want to thank you for talking to me today and kind of sharing your journey and what it's like to work as a children's social worker because honestly it's kind of really given me an insight to what it really means to work as one and I've learned so much from you today um what is there anything that you would want to share in terms of people who do want to go into this field or is there any other like words that you want to say before we close off? I think my advice to anyone would be just make sure you know what you want to do mm. and what kind of path you want to do. I think for me, I'm, I'm a perfect example in a sense. I, I tried to pursue the science field because I thought that was what was right. Um, 
then completely didn't enjoy it and then I changed and now I wouldn't say I love my job it's a love and hate relationship there's good days there's bad days but I do enjoy it mm. um yeah so just take your time age is just a number you know yeah and um yeah just know that you like what you do and you see yourself doing that for the next 20 to 30 years yeah that's yeah. yeah that's good advice and also like we touched in the beginning you know we're constantly learning we're constantly changing so yeah be open-minded for yeah. sure nice yeah. and thank you for all the compliments Richard I echo everything you said definitely like just for all the uh listeners out there me and Richard I think we've known each other like for a long time we've had mm-hmm. very same friendship circle but through this pandemic been able to you know know you better on a deeper level <laughs> Grown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure for sure yeah yeah all right thank you so much Nanama. and um to the listeners please if you do enjoy this episode and you think anyone else would benefit from it do share it with your friends um again thank you Nanama, and it was lovely talking to you thank you richard for having me bye bye